Good morning, everyone. We dive into some serious teaching. So the way the rest of the morning will go for us is that there'll be this teaching time, and then we'll move into the Lord's table, communion, uh, the sacrament of um, the table, and then we will send you out with a good blessing after some announcements. So that's what we have going on. So I'm going to uh, throw um, some stuff at you this morning that is uh, of the more headspace, if you want to put it that way. So if you have a Bible or if you have a nice Bible app on your phone, um, uh, you might want to turn then to Colossians. And uh, so let's get right to the text. It'd be Colossians chapter 3, and then I'm going to jump back and forth between Colossians chapter 3 and then Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and it's up on the screen as well. So here we go. Oh, and by the way, I'm, I typically use the New Revised Standard version, and they have a updated edition and why there that's why there's a ue on the end of n-r-s-v-u-e like oh it's on the screen it's not actually ue but i speak too much okay here we go um so if you paul says this he's writing uh to the church in Colossae. uh so if you have been raised with christ seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. And then uh, last verse there, verse 5 out of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly. Then jumping to Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, I became its, and its here is the church. This is Paul speaking, introductory chapter. I became the church's minister according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints, the Christians. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, this is the mystery, everyone, the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there's a lot here, and I love Paul's short little letters here, these four particularly uh, that are known um, as Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians and Galatians. So this morning, then, I want to present to you what, in my estimation, is really, and I, I've thought about this in trying to make such a bold statement, I think this is the highest level of Christ-likeness. I think it's the highest level of Christ-likeness, and that is to be in Christ, to be in Christ. And uh, so this morning, I give you this highest goal. This is what you're after. This is the, the brass ring. This is the highest thing. I present to you spiritual maturity. Do we want to live the Christian life at its very pinnacle? Then here's where we start, and this is where we also end. This is it, okay? I know it's quite a statement to make, but I think you'll see what I'm talking about. So, but let's begin then with the problem. Here's here's a situation that we're in. In our day and age, we have individualized the faith. It's not necessarily our particular fault, but we've individualized it. We have privatized the faith. We've made it just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. 
Yes, indeed, each of us has a personal relationship with Christ. It's not the personal relationship that's the problem. It's the privatization, the private relationship that is actually not scriptural. Yes, personal, but not private. And there's, you can make, you know, you can get into a lot of language distinctions here. But I'm just making the case that Christianity is always personal, but it's not necessarily always private. Okay? We still live in the me generation, which started back in the 60s or whatever. We still are in that sort of, each generation seems to be more obsessed with me than ever. We live in an age of authenticity, if you want to get to the philosophical place. We all say these days, I have got to be special. Of course, every commercial you see on television tells you how extremely special you are, and that's why you should buy this car, um, because it'll just make you even more special. I am unique. I am my own brand. Everything around us tells us it's all about you. The smartphone, you know, the smartphone, it, it, look no further than the smartphone. It is, what is the most dominant use of a cell phone? The phone in your hand is predominantly used for self-expression. Social media comes first over and over and over. And then comes information, you know, and communication and then commerce, of course. But it's all about self-expression. We take the most powerful device ever invented in humanity, and it's all about self. How cool can you be? How present? How good do you look? So according to modern philosopher Charles Taylor, we live in a pressured box these days. It's this constant pressure of competition for self-expression. And you constantly feel behind because you're not expressing enough. It's called the imminent frame, if you want to get really philosophical about it. Now, moving from philosophy then to theologian Robert Mulholland. Robert Mulholland once asked, when we ask Christians, where is God? Like, where is he? Where's God? Good Bible-believing Christians, Mulholland says, often answer, God is in heaven. God is in heaven. When we read Paul's words here in Colossians, if you still have it open in front of you, we assume that God is up there. God's up. Up above in the clouds, in outer space, somewhere out there. Um, so when Paul's Greek audience hears Paul say, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Greeks think in their day and age, 2,000 years ago, they think of what? They think of Mount Olympus and Zeus. They have the Greek gods and the Roman gods even in their mind. The Greeks think then of the four elements, right? This is your test back in uh, anthropology class or whatever we all took or social studies. What are, the Greek, uh, what are the Greeks' four elements, right? Earth, then water, and then air, and then fire, you know, and fire's like spirit, right? And so... I want to point out that like the Greeks, we have a distant God in our world. God is not necessarily close. God is separated from us. More to the point, God is not here. He's not here. He is an unknown God and an unknown place, some far, far place, far over the rainbow. This is not what Paul is saying when he says then, above. This is our day and age, and it's also the Greeks. Where Christ is seated, Paul says, above, and we, 
we, we get it off a little bit, if not a lot. Paul does this amazing thing over and over in his letters, though. He brings together his Jewish background, being a Hebrew, and the Greek world, because he's a Roman citizen. And he brings those together, and he's doing it spectacularly right here. He's trying to introduce the Greeks to the Hebrew God, to Yahweh. Okay? He's doing this amazing thing with the Jewish God, and he presents, um, you know, because for the Jews, God was all around them everywhere. God was very, very earthy. Um, All of the Jewish world was surrounded by these various symbols, very strong symbols of the temple, of Sabbath, of um, keeping kosher law around the dinner table, uh, living and breathing the Torah, the law, the promised land. All, All that says El Shaddai is right here in our midst for the Jews. It's a very earthy. You could argue with God. You could yell at God. You, they didn't ever think of saying, like, I don't believe in you. you. You never said, I don't believe in God like we do. They just argued with God. They were deeply connected. And Paul pulls together Yahweh from the Jews right up to his Greek audience here in, in Colossians and says, God is in you. And I'm impressed by that statement because Paul is doing this incredible thing where he's taking a Greek world and a Jewish world and pulling them together inside of the person, which is actually a very modern thing if you think about it. For you have died, he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. To them, Christ, it, to them, I'm reading from the text, repeating there, looking at it. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice this brilliance where Paul is relocating God inside the person. You're like, well, wait a second. You're just talking about all this authenticity in our modern age, and I've got to be me and everything, and now am I God? Like, yeah, that makes a really quick mistake in our day and age that everybody wants to be their own God. So we have to be very careful. To help clarify, we go back to the 1940s, uh, actually 1930s, sorry, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he clarifies this, and it may not seem as clear to you, it does to some of us here. He clarifies this when he says, grace, Bonhoeffer says, grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it is costly because it cost a man his life. And above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. You see his logic going on here. You have to kind of read it a few times. God indwells Jesus Christ. It is God in Christ on the cross. And Paul then pulls all this together over in Philippians chapter 2. Same sort of thought, same sort of audience for Paul. And he has this, one of the very first hymns of the church right here. Philippians chapter 2. Though he existed, though Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. 
So now I come to my point because I've kind of been loading things onto you. When Jesus is identified as God, it is God who goes to the cross. The cross is not something God did. The cross is something God is. Equaling the cross with God is something theologians call cruciform love. Cruciform, like crucifixion, like crux, like the Greek word for cross. It's called cruciform love. The highest expression of following Jesus Christ, then, is to die to self the same as Jesus did as God, as God does on the cross. We, you and I, must die to our own self-importance. Now, before you react and get all freaked out here on this thing, because this is pretty pushy stuff, understand that we are of infinite worth to God because God, as Christ, went to the cross for us out of love. So I'm not trying to say punish yourself or think that you're worthless. You're of infinite worth to God. You're of infinite worth to God because God went to the cross in Christ. I think that's quite a bit of worth. So don't, don't mess this up. The cruciform God is nothing but love for us. But like God, our own self-importance must be crucified. And this is where we break away from our modern authentic age, which says it's all about be, me, worship me, 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 me. And, and this is where Christianity becomes revolutionary at this point because it says, you must die to yourself. You must die to your own self-worth, to your own self-importance. And I don't mean self-worth as far as self-esteem. I mean that you are not God. I am not God. Only with this theological underpinning are we able to die to ourselves and die to our neighbor. Lakeland, this is how we change the world. If you don't start here, everything else is just good intentions. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than ourselves. So why am, so, why am I so emphatic about this cruciformity fancy word? This idea of the cruciform God is right in the wheelhouse of what it means to be Lakeland Community Church. This is bedrock for how this church operates. Cruciformity, though you may not have known it for over 25 years, cruciformity is our fuel for why we have given away millions and millions of dollars to people that we will probably never meet. This is the bedrock for how we operate. It's why we sacrifice for the sake of others. This is love. This is how we understand the world. Cruciformity is how we understand the operation of the cross. It's how we think of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Cruciformity is why we have solitude and silence retreats, small groups, Mercy Street, on and on and on. The growth path is all about this. Everything we do is about this. What does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus? Cruciformity. What does it mean to listen to the still, small voice of God? Cruciformity. What does it mean to sell your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor? Cruciformity. What does it mean to break bread, drink the cup, and find friends for the journey? 
cruciformity. What does it mean to scrub a table, to scrape gum off the stairs, unclog toilets, pick up trash in the parking lot? It's cruciformity. That God went to the cross in Jesus Christ and then tell us to pick up our cross and come follow him. On the other hand, if you silently simmer that there are a lot of dumb people in the world and you just seem smarter than everybody else and that others just don't get it. Why can't they just get it? But you do. And that you feel like they're the only one who cleans up after themselves and empties the dishwasher and puts things away And has a perfect yard. Then to be blunt. You need some more spiritual maturity. You need to grow up. Because it's not about you. You've got some dying to do. This is the constant teaching that goes on every day. And every moment of your day where it says, maybe I should be a person, not of my first thought that they're a terrible driver, but the second thought that maybe they're racing to the ER. And think the best of people instead of the worst. Um, I have some, I'm going to call them sensitive photos to show you. Last week, Lori and I had uh, dinner with one of our Ford Together ministry initiative leaders. Um, Ford Together is a three-year financial challenge we have going on around here, and we're in the first year of it. And one of those ministries is outside of Juarez, Mexico, in a little neighborhood called Anapra. So we had dinner with Estella, who's the leader of this ministry in Anapra, along with her husband, Luis, and their son, Enrique, and with Katie and Brandon Schultz, who are part of the ministry. And during the dinner... Um, Estella mentioned, really not with any great um, agenda or anything, she just mentioned a diabetic man in Anapra, Mr. Rodrigo, who has lost both of his legs due to, di to the diabetes, to the disease. And he lies in the same position with a very narrow uh, view of a window. And day after day and week after week, he looks at the ceiling and he's not able to move and Estella said it would be wonderful if he had a specialized wheelchair um, that he could just move out of the position that he's in, uh, a wheelchair that would lay flat or articulates. And, um, and Katie said, I, she said, I think they're expensive. Uh, I, I agree. I thought that sounds like a really expensive wheelchair. Coincidentally, um, I just haven't been sleeping well lately, just my own stuff, no need to go there, but... Um, and in the middle of the night, I thought, you know, I keep thinking about this Mr. Rodrigo guy in his wheelchair, and I'm thinking, like, this is stupid. I, 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 could, I could pay for this. I don't know what they cost, but... And I thought, Lakeland could pay for this. There's a bunch of people in this church who could pay for this. There's a bunch of people who can't pay for it. I thought, we could buy this guy a wheelchair. That's what I'm thinking. Right? 
So I mentioned this Mr. Rodrigo situation to Garrett and Marta, and Garrett points out, he says, uh, you know, the Anapra Mexico rice and beans, because the last financial challenge we did did so well, there's extra money, and they have extra money. They, they have extra money. They already have the money. I texted Katie, not in the middle of the night. I texted Katie, buy the wheelchair. Amazon will ship it direct and make it easier. And um, I just said, just get it done. And it was $669 on Amazon. Like, wait a second, $669? I thought it'd be like $6,000 or whatever. Like, are you kidding me? Like, how many wheelchairs do we need to buy? I mean, it kind of stole my thunder because I was just going to like, hey, man, nobody's leaving the room until we get this guy a wheelchair, you know? So, but you guys already bought the wheelchair is my point. You've already done it because you died to yourself. And it's just 600, I say just $669, which is not just $669 if you don't have $669. My hunch is there's some people here, including myself, that have $669. See, everybody, we already bought the wheelchair. And together we die to self, and the funds are there. And if all goes smoothly, this man, this dying man, will be able to look up at the sky some evening and look at the same exact moon that you'll get out there at about 10 o'clock tonight and look at. You and Mr. Rodrigo. Wheelchair, it's just one small thing. But it's well beyond just human kindness. This is God. This is Jesus on the cross. This is us. This is Lakeland. This is what we do. To die to self and to die to your neighbor is not only the very, very first thing you learn as a disciple in Christ, that you must die to self. It is the very, very last thing you learn as a Christian, that you must die to yourself. If I tried to make this sound complicated, your very first lesson as a Christian is actually your very last lesson as a Christian. It's that basic. And it's that hard. The Christian life is spending day after day learning to die to self. And that'll take a lifetime to learn. Amen. 